Yes, we had to go about it, find it out, and write it ourselves, but there's some stories we can tell you. This is the <laughs> final word coming to you from The Wacker Ground with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, the Guardian Ashes podcast, and Australia has just wrapped those ashes up. 3-0, comprehensive, and uh, a flattening win over England in the third test, Adam. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a little beauty. I feel like I should, you know, be for you, sort of be getting, parochial. getting all parochial. But um, look, I, I don't feel that way. To be honest, I feel as though it was a wonderful win and, and Australia accounted for themselves beautifully over three test matches. But if anything, my parting thoughts as we leave Perth are uh, seeing this beautiful ground as the lights go out a minute ago. We were standing out on the balcony and uh, filming a video as the lights went down for the final time in those beautiful Soviet-era uh, light towers and, and the rain sweeping across the ground and uh, I know we've had our differences on this particular topic but I enjoyed what we saw on day one here in particular seeing the pace in the wickets some fantastic fast bowling I enjoy being at an old-fashioned traditional cricket ground that's my parting thought leaving here is that I think I'm going to miss the whacker we will get into a more of a deep dive on the test match in the back half of the program. But we thought we'd front load it this week with another interview. Now, we interviewed Jason Gillespie last week. It was a fascinating chat. Went off-road, went through all of different topics well away from <laughs> cricket. And we thought, well, let's do that again with an interesting voice, someone who'll be very familiar to Guardian and Observer readers and uh, BBC TMS listeners. Victor Marks, of course, had a distinguished county cricket career, represented England with some distinction as well, even if he talks that down. And, of course, has been a very respected journalist for three decades and more and of course has a strong association with the Wacker as someone who played for Western Australia out here won the Sheffield Shield with WA in 1986-7 which is not something that many English professionals have come over to do so for now as we say farewell to the WACA ground for the final time let's talk to Vic Marks Vic Marks, you've got a long relationship with the Wacker. You knew it in your youth. Was there a, a poignant moment when that match came to an end or were you too busy lamenting England's performance? Well, I wasn't doing either of those things, really. I was scrambling to get some copy to my employers <laughs> on time to, I think the right phrase is, to hit the digital hotspot, whatever that may be. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't in tears. And I should preface this by saying, you know, I had one season at the Wacker. It was fantastic. But in hindsight, I've milked this to death. <laughs> it was it was ten games, five games, maybe six first-class mm -hmm. games at the Wacker. And I did okay, and therefore I left, you know, in quite good odour. But what was brilliant was I never came back. <laughs> not many, so not they many, still think well of me there. But not many people in that era, or even now, of course, have been internationals playing in the Sheffield Shield. What, what was the background on, on you actually getting a Guernsey? Briefly, I mean, I got a phone call out of the blue well into September from Rod Marsh, who was a selector, who doesn't sort of mince his words, do you want to come and play for WA? <laughs> so it was more or less after a quick hello. Well, I said, give us a couple of days to think about it. And well, Anna was very keen. <laughs> And I played one season already of grey cricket in mm. Perth for Bayswater Morley. So I sort of knew the city and I knew how tough the cricket was. So I was a bit concerned about the toughness of the cricket. I knew Sheffield Shield would be demanding, but it was too good a suggestion to turn down. So within a couple of weeks, I was in Perth. And within just a bit more than that, I was playing against South Australia with a team I didn't really know particularly well, <laughs> but I got to know better as the season went on. 
As a notoriously nice man coming into <laughs> Perth grade cricket and then Sheffield Shield cricket, was there a culture shock coming from English county cricket? The culture shock was bigger going into grade cricket than it was into Shield cricket. I was over 30, I suppose, when I went to play for WA. But I'd had that season, which I'd enjoyed hugely. But I had got sledged a bit initially for Bayswater. And actually, I think this is right, Kim Hagdorn, I always remember Kim Hagdorn, who was playing for South Perth. And he was a mean sort of seamer. He played one game for WA. And I remember Bayswater playing against South Perth. His shirt was flapping wildly. I think I read about it the other day, actually. Mm. And batsman complained, what does he do? He just rips his shirt off, <laughs> throws it to the umpire, and says, can you see all right now? Well, that never happened back at South Taunton. I can tell you. So I got used to it, but I also just sort of laughed at him quietly. And that was quite a good response when you get sledged. The shield cricket was, it was still quite steamy, but it was, it was better behaved, I think, at that level than it might be at grade level. There's a correlation, I think, between the standard you're playing, but it's, it's the reverse of what you might expect, I think. Yeah. Uh, Chris Rogers has spoken about this before, that the hardest cricket he played was the grade cricket he played in Melbourne um. on account of the fact that the AFL culture no inch given but that's not your sort of story I mean you go to your quick info page and that is a, a line from Wisdom from Matthew Ingalls mild nervy self-deprecating farm boy with an Oxford degree and no enemies I mean that's at once a, a lovely thing to have said about you but it, it can be interpreted to two ways and you have got that reputation as Jeff alluded to before as being the ultimate sort of nice bloke in cricket is that an impression you've tried to cultivate over the years or do you, do you think well, that's an accurate portrayal I'm not sure you I've are? calculated that too much but I, I obviously get to hear it but I mean, I think whether it was Somerset or even with WA, I, you know, actually when I was on the field, although I didn't, I didn't sledge anyone because I wasn't very good at it, but I would, might have a few quips with them. But I didn't like losing a great deal, and I liked playing in a good team, and I didn't, you know, give anything away cheaply as, as best I could. So I was, in my own way, quite competitive, but that was not my manner. But it was weird coming to WA. I think there was a certain amount of bewilderment. And I wasn't the first choice, I'm pretty sure. I think they had Pat Pocock, who's an English off oh, yeah. did couldn't quite make it. I'd have scored more runs than him, I tell you. <laughs> I did. Um, and I think Siva Ramakrishnan was another one. So I oh. think they must have got through those two, and the time was running short. <laughs> the other logical thing uh, where that might not necessarily couple up is, is the change room you played in at, at Somerset, which is probably one of the more famous change yeah. rooms in the history of professional cricket when you consider some of the international players you had come through there and, of course, yourself and Peter Roebuck and others that played for England, and both of them, of course, Joel Garner, um, yeah. Richards. I mean, it's, it's a cavalcade of stars, Martin Crow. There's been so many words written Steve about... Steve Waugh. Steve Waugh, indeed. There's so many words written about your, your change room of, of that era. I mean, I was, looking back, absolutely thrilled and privileged to play with some of the great, great players and some characters as well. So, at its best, it was fantastic. And at its worst, it was absolutely dire. <laughs> and I experienced both, you know, in the early days, late 70s, 80s, Both was there, hugely ambitious... Viv, no one had ever heard of Viv. He wouldn't qualify now. He could not play in English county cricket now mm. because he wouldn't have played the requisite number of international matches to be right. signed up as an overseas player. Wow. But we knew within... I can remember joining the club alongside Viv, Both, Peter Roebuck, local Phil Slocum, one other. Same, same season, 1974. And Pete and I were watching and we were doing there was middle practice going on and we'd never really seen Viv and we were sort of waiting to replace Viv and whoever he was batting with had our pads on ready to go and then we saw Viv just play one shot against a bit of a not a great bowler but it, it was a square cut and it just went like an absolute bullet it was a majestic shot April 15th or something 
And we just looked at one another and said, well, <laughs> we ain't going to get in the team ahead of this bloke, whoever he is. <laughs> um, and, and he, within about, I don't know, well, within a couple innings, his first innings was in a one-day game. Pete and I weren't playing, but against Glamorgan, he won man of the match. Fantastic. And you knew with Viv, as opposed to Both, you knew that Viv was destined for the top after one stroke, two innings. Um, Both, you you couldn't quite see it with Both, to be honest. Um, It wasn't that obvious, although we quite liked watching him as well. And early on, those those sort of Sunday, one-day comp wins you had and they got the ball rolling and got the club moving in the right direction after having no sort of domestic success until that time. do you think about those times as, as the best moments of your career when, when, when it was really rocking and rolling there as, you, as well, you know, Gillette Cup days and all the rest? Yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, they were great days at Taunton. If you, you've been down to Taunton. I have, you yeah. must have done. Yep. And it would be jam-packed, very local support. It's like, it's, I quite like playing in WA because there was that same feeling of us against those sophisticated <laughs> blokes in the east in Australia mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. places like Melbourne yeah. Sydney <laughs> Fancy uh, and for down in the west country it was anyone west, east of Bristol really but you know especially I don't think there was an M25 then but anyone inside then was slightly dubious mm. I mean in a way the most memorable although we don't want to go into too much detail was we had two seasons 78, 79, 78 we'd lost Janet Cup final and we'd lost the Sunday league having only to win the last game. We'd never won anything. Uh, and we mucked up completely. And the whole and, and none of us will ever forget that weekend because in the second one back at Taunton, we lost narrowly. The first trophy still hadn't been won. Mm. And I just remember that dressing room was absolutely stunned, tears and everything like that. And then we got told, look, you've got to go up onto this little balcony we had. And we everyone was miserable. No, we don't do that. And we were forced up there. And there were, I know this sounds pathetic, but there was about six or 7,000 people who just stayed on, mm. cheered and cheered and cheered, even though we'd lost. And um, I don't think that dressing room ever forgot that. And um, that's why we were, you know, the following season. That was a sort of fantastic impetus. There was a great sort of communal feeling that young side, we knew we had some special players in the making. Uh, but there was this huge pressure. We've got to win something. got to do it at some point. And, you know, we did the following year. We had the mirror image. We won the one-day final and we won the Sunday League. Because it's not a very big place down there, Taunton, not much else happens in the sporting world. It was um, quite magical. And uh, we, we also won with Essex, too. We had a sort of bond with Essex, who won their first trophies in 79. Right. Sort of slightly unfashionable outsiders. Um, but it's a long time ago now. And Viv was at his peak then. I mean, when we lost, Viv was just destroying my room. Just absolutely destroying his Stuart Surridge jumbo <laughs> against the bath. And it just ended up in smithereens. I mean, he was he was distraught as anyone. Getting in on the ground floor of Viv Richard's <laughs> career before anyone knew who he was, is that like buying a Picasso before he died? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we knew before anyone else <laughs> that we would go. I mean, I remember watching Andy Roberts was at Hampshire. And they were just playing a different game. Uh, again, in that first season, I wouldn't have been in the first team, but I watched a bit and I was probably in the scoreboard working it. But we watched him play against Roberts, you know, the two Antigans having their own little personal battle. And Roberts was in another world to what we were used to, no helmets yet. And Viv was taking him on. Sometimes he'd hook him out of the ground, sometimes he'd get hit. And we thought, 
well, we can't, this is amazing, we can't compete with this, and I'm not sure we want to go and face Andy Roberts much either, but it was just on another plane, and you know how English professionals, as opposed to Australian ones, of course, can get a bit sort of cynical, and they're not too bothered, and they don't watch much until it's their turn, but I mean, when Richards was at the crease, everyone was on the balcony, because you just mm. didn't want to miss it, and he was extraordinary. We've heard a lot in this series about the current Ashes series about fast bowling. And people mm. keep talking about it all the time. When you were going around in that era, there were some incredible fast bowlers in county cricket. Um, was that something that you felt comfortable with early, or did you have to work out how to? Oh, face you certainly that? had to work out. I mean, <coughs> I mean, the helmet is a big thing. The helmet came in basically around seventy eight, seventy seven. You had Dennis Amos in England wearing a kind of motorbike helmet. Mm. Mike Brearley had a kind of a cap thing he put underneath his cap, skull cap type of thing. Uh, so that made it, I mean, that in hindsight makes a huge difference. So the first time I came across anyone like that, I played schools cricket and Wayne Daniel was playing for West Indies. And of course, we'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you didn't, you, you didn't allow yourself to get hit on the head. No one got hit on the head. Oh, hardly anyone got hit on the head. So you must have played differently. Uh, but it was more terrifying too. Uh, bec um, people were more concerned to make sure they didn't get home there. So that in a way, they had to be braver. Although ostensibly, particularly once you got down to nine, ten, Jack, they looked far more cowardly because mm. they got out of the way. And mm. but you could understand why they got out of the way because if they got hit, they were done for. Um, and there were, well, Roberts was the first of that breed, probably in candy cricket, and then the other West Indians were the ones. You'd look at the, the old pros would look at the, the fixture list and. I mean, the real cynical old coes were probably booking their hamstrings at the right <laughs> time, but I'm not sure that happened at some point. You know, Sylvester Clark and Courtney Walsh a little bit later on. Had to avoid them if he possibly could. Holding would be playing somewhere. The Kiwi John Wright yep. was the most popular man in county cricket for all sorts of good reasons, but one of them was Derbyshire had two, but they could only play one. So if it was John Wright, everyone's rushing up to, oh, lovely to see you again, John, because <laughs> you weren't playing against Michael. Right. Um, but, it, yeah, so there were more around, but there weren't, like the Englishmen have to face here, there weren't three. I mean, the, the only parallel with that is they, they talked about it quite a lot in this series. That there is not much respite because the Aussies have had three genuinely quick bowlers. And the only parallel for that is that West Indies side of, you know, late 70s, early 80s. At county level... There was usually just one, and you and you were kept watching to see. Well, Marshall's just finished a spell, six overs. He can't bowl again for another hour. So if I'm next in, if I get in now, I'll be all right for a bit. I mean, a lot of it, of course, is just getting accustomed. You know, you can get accustomed, and you did get a bit more accustomed. But you just needed to be used to this ball coming towards you. We didn't have the radar then, but probably around about a 90 mile an hour mark, mm. which is a huge leap, isn't it? From the 82, 83, 84, up to 90, it's a huge leap. We've seen that in this series, probably. You've got a quite quirky finish to your test career, don't you? Yeah, oh yeah. Your last three test matches were half centuries, including you know, a 74 and a 55 after an 83, and you were principally there for your bowling. It's odd to have done so well with the bat before <laughs> getting given the, given, given the punt. What, what, what actually happened there? In Pakistan, no less. Yeah, well, it was it? flat. <laughs> it was certainly quite flat there. Well, I should point out, but I was signed by Somerset as a batsman, mm -hmm. and I only learned to bowl quite late in my career. I, you know, I bowled casual off spin. And so the balance changed 
but I used to bat at the start Somerset above Bath because right. I was a batsman and then that I evolved as, as sort of more of an all-rounder and off-spin all-rounder mm. so it's not entirely surprising I got some runs I mean, they were on pretty flat pitches in Faisalabad especially it was just rolled mud Nonetheless, you are quite well researched. That three, not many people have been left out after three consecutive half centuries. But it was at the sort of end of the tour. And the other thing, it helped me to play in the first place. But there were a few banned South African rebels knocking around. Sounds like a a Robin Hood kind of scenario, though. (laughs) There were banned South African rebels in the forest. (laughs) Well, yeah. So you, yes. But I did get some. I mean, it was very because my record before that with a bat was hopeless. Uh, But I could bat a bit. So we spoke to Jason Gillespie in the last podcast, dropped from the test side after making an Two hundred, yeah, well, yeah, and so then, I better not complain after, you but, know. But three fifties in a row, this is turning into the hard luck club. <laughs> it is, yeah. Well, I, you know, I imagine you have to have a record, something like that, to get asked to this club. I'm thinking the, the Glenn Maxwell of your era, you know, handy, off-spinning, all-rounder, make, <laughs> uh, tagged as a subcontinent specialist, makes a bunch of runs over there and then gets dropped from the team. Well, more to the yeah. point, would have you been well-suited to the modern era? Where I mean, you played a lot of a lot more limited overs cricket for England yeah, than yeah. test cricket. Would, would have, the, would have the, the T20 revolution been the sort of thing that would have suited your game? Well, who knows? I mean, I'm not sure. People play off-spin so much differently and probably so much better now. They were very, you know obedient in the old days and except in Australia where they had different rules in England I would bowl to six men on the leg side and I would bowl I was good at bowling a line if nothing else so it'd be you know right on sort of middle and leg to leg mm. in one day cricket and 90% of the batsmen would obediently hit it towards the leg side where you had six of your fielders <laughs> and most of them but not all most of them if you had a long on thought well best not hit it for in the air in that direction because I might get caught at long on well, of course all that's disappeared and the, all these reverse la- laps and hits you know so it would have taken some adjustment and I wouldn't have been so economical I know that but I'd like to have had a go you, you made a decision Vic towards the end of your uh, first class career to, to pack it in and, and, and work as a full-time journalist was that an easy thing to do at the time given how long you'd played for Somerset or was it something that um, was was difficult to you want to get a chance to retire once obviously and um, did you ever sort of get to that stage in the early nineties maybe where you thought yeah I wish I was still running about or have you, have you been a happy no. retired all throughout I mean I I was I'd written for a couple of years for the Observer whilst I was still playing mm-hmm. uh, with Shield Berry was the cricket correspondent and Shield then left and. I was asked to do it, and my initial reaction, I would like to have done another year at Somerset. I'd only, although I captained Somerset a lot over the years, it was only in the last year and a bit that I was actually the captain. Mm-hmm. And I think I would have liked to have done another year, partly as a captain and partly as a player. However, the Observer, although extremely generous, said that we can't hold it, so I had to make a decision. I was 34, you know, I thought fairly long and hard but I never felt uncomfortable about giving up it is weird to have worked for the same paper for so long and I'm sure if I had a bit more zip about me perhaps I'd have spread out but I've always loved cricket Mm. um, and I've never really contemplated leaving it so in I don't know about privilege but lucky certainly yep um and I ain't going to change. There's not much left now. Not much time to leave to do something. To be a champion of industry or anything like that. No, I don't think. Um, so that's. I mean, it wasn't particularly planned. But along came that job. And of course, you know, I now realise that the Observer 
cricket correspondent's job of about 25 years ago was a was the perfect job, which no longer exists, of course. But you know, we we can't believe how little we had to write. Really. <laughs> <laughs> that was Sunday paper. Exactly, Sunday paper once a week. That was it. Full Ashes tour. I don't, you know, well, it's, it's amazing, really, that we managed to get away with it for so long. <laughs> And you've become a daily correspondent. In oh, yes, your, in I, your, I mean, I've let, noticed let's, that. let's call it for what it is. You're in your 60s and you become a daily correspondent. I know, I, this, this is not the usual way these things work, is it? I know. It just shows you how little control I have over my life. <laughs> <laughs> but that's right. I was, I'm of an age where some people are just sort of toning down a bit. But as you've noticed, Adam, I'm working harder than ever before. The other string to your bow is, of course, the radio commentary side. Working for TMS is, you know, something of a privilege there are there are people who adore it there's there are, there's a, a fan club in Britain how did that side of your career come about well I can tell you the how it came about originally uh, very briefly is I was on as a player England tour of India 1984-5 England are on the cusp of winning the Delhi test match test match specials there but the summarizers two of the summarizers Mike Salvi who you all know mm. love he got a terrible stomach problem at the last day had to leave and Abbas Ali Bey former Indian test player had told Peter Baxter I've got to go to a wedding on the third day but he'd admitted to tell Peter Baxter that Indian weddings tend to go on for three days <laughs> <laughs> and England are about to win and he hasn't got any summarizers and in those days Peter Baxter long established TMS producer this is the way it was on that particular tour just wandered into the England dressing room basically and said is there anyone around who's free um, in a way you couldn't do now obviously Hmm. And uh, I was free. <laughs> I was more than happy to do it. So I, I sat alongside, I certainly Tony Lewis was one of them, and summarised or you know, sat next to him gleefully while England won a famous victory in Delhi on the last afternoon. So that was, that was the first appearance, pure good luck. And then I did all bits and pieces while I was still playing, probably. Peter Baxter would get you out for a B&H game here hmm. and there or whatever. And when I retired, dear Peter asked me along, you know, sporadically and you always say yes was there a particular joy you found to doing that or was it just there's an opportunity therefore you should take it well, you know you both know mm. it, it's good fun <laughs> probably the best broadcasting you're not too self-conscious you're not analyzing you're not polishing a piece you're just there you can't really prepare that much maybe the commentators can a bit but most of them know their stuff anyway you just turn up and in the best, you know, the best way it works is that it is a, a conversation about the cricket. As long as you shut up at the right time, if you're the summariser, you've got to learn to shut up occasionally. You, you wrote a piece for the Night Watchman in your typical self-deprecating style, basically saying, mm. just don't say anything much and leave it to the person whose job it is to do the talking. Um, is that well, accurate or are you playing that down? Obviously, at radio, you've got to say something. <laughs> But the important thing is to make sure that you do shut up at the appropriate moments, which is, fairly simply, when the bloke's running up to bowl. You've got to shut up. Even if you're in the middle of the best joke or the best piece of advice or whatever it is, you've got to shut up because he's got to tell you what's happened. And then if necessary, if something does happen, then you just lose that gem. But if nothing happens, you just pick it up at the end of the dot. Oddly, the match that I most remember, although I can't remember all the detail, being on right at the end was probably the best one-day match I've ever seen, which was that semi-final World Cup, Edgbaston. Uh, I was on with Tim Lane at mm. the end, as it happens. 
I mean, it was just a fantastic... I mean, Tim was brilliant. It was a fantastic finale. The only thing I can remember doing right is very early on asking the question, probably not giving the answer, what happens if it's a tie? <laughs> and we found out the answer. We'll have to dig out that call because Simon Mann called that for BBC television. Uh, obviously, Bill Laurie's famous call on Channel 9 television and then you and Tim Lane over on the radio. So you're, you're the one that should be on YouTube along to, alongside those two. It's one of the, one well, of the moments. Well, who knows? Today. I don't know about that. But I, uh, that's, that, I just remember that as being the best one-day game I've ever seen and getting caught up in the drama of it. On radio, self-deprecation's definitely your shtick. Uh, <laughs> the, there's, you know, the name of the book... Marks out of eleven. Just well, it's a better name than the original one, which was "View from the Balcony." <laughs> yeah, that's not so good. No. I mean, unless you were talking about the Viv Richard stuff, remember? No, no. But I mean that you know that's a brilliant piece of, of putting oneself down. Is that does that just come naturally to you, or do you find that's a useful to work way to navigate it. the world? Well, that's a that's a that's a difficult, deep question. I that's mean, I think it, I mean I don't think it's a new development, and it may be a sort of safety valve. But that's the way I've been most of the time. I can lurch, actually, a bit. Well, I forget the self-deprecation bit. I can, I can lurch from being the Somerset farmer's son, which I was, and, you know, simple self-deprecating. And just occasionally I can pretend to be the Oxford graduate with a classical degree, not a very good one. But as good as Daniel Nelcross. <laughs> we went to the same college, as it happens, in different times, same tutors. So I don't know where I am, but I can look, say, and the self-deprecation. But it gets you by, doesn't it, without mm. getting too much hassle. They liked it. I mean, they liked it in great cricket here, you know, they, it diffused situations. I right. don't remember. Towards the end of my time into great cricket, I can't remember being sledged much. They just didn't bother. I jumped over that. I meant to ask you about your, your degree at Oxford. Well, uh, we can, no, we've had only, enough of that. <laughs> only to the extent that I, I, I was curious about the, you know, the, the farmer's son from Somerset ending up at Oxford. It's not the most natural fit. No, what, no. What, how, how did this occur? Well, I know it's a long it's, time ago. Well, it's a long time ago, and it was fairly accidental. But I, I went... In those days, I went to an independent school in Devon, and anyone who went there who was capable capable were siphoned in to go to university you just sort of went they pushed you in that direction come right. what may I mean if you want I mean it was a huge thing for me to go to Oxford not from a so much from an academic point of view but from a cricket point of view because we played my first match at Oxford was right after the 74-5 tour there was Greggy captaining Sussex John Snow was bowling my first ball in first you know it was fantastic to play against all these guys so but I snuck into Oxford if I'm honest because partly because of what I read which was a less popular course if I'd said I wanted to do PP in Lord Oxford I'd been laughed out of it but I'd managed to sneak in not knowing that that was the way to do it but I did it'd be remiss of us not to ask about Peter Roebuck who you played with and close friends with and you talked about your Somerset days and with him and obviously it's someone who Jeff and I have grown up reading and listening to and taking a lot of direction from in the way he did his job. You, mm -hmm. you knew him when you were teenage boys, weren't you really? You, were, you just yeah. had a very long-standing friendship. Were you immediately close? Were you close from when you first met or did that take time well, to warm to each other? not long. I mean, I first played with him for England public schools, actually, under 15 against ESCA. That's the English Schools Creek Association the non-public schools, if you like. And the Esker teams had played North, South, East, West in the early part of the week, and they'd pick their best team to play against the public schools. And one year, we went 13th man for Esker 
Ian Botham, thirteenth <laughs> man. So you can imagine, he left immediately in high dudgeon. So I knew Pete from about the age of fifteen, although I got to know him much better when we joined the staff. And we were soon contrasting mates. He was my best man, actually. Mm. And we travelled, you know, these tortures. We were hopeless. We travelled around the country, getting lost frequently. He would bellow at me for being such a hesitant, slow driver. We couldn't listen to any directions. We got lost. We listened to radio on, you know, the Friday nights. was always any questions. He would get incredibly animated about this idiot on any questions, mm. talking rubbish. He'd shout at the radio as I drove on. And we kind of laughed at the same things. What I mean, I, I knew Pete well, especially well. Pete got on extremely well with both, too, in those early days, it should be noted. So we knew each other well. And when he I was leaping forward, there was lots of great stuff written about Pete after he died um, by all sorts of people. A lot of the people in press boxes this side and back in England. I don't think Pete recognised how respected he was actually in England. He, he declined to see that. And the tenor was always, you know, a bit grim as well. But I, and, and the only thing that I'd sort of regretted about all those pieces is that I knew that when he was younger, he wasn't quite so tortured. He laughed at himself. Well, as you, you know, not, his autobiography was sometimes mm. I've got a lot. He laughed at himself quite a lot. And whilst there were clearly some dark and incredibly difficult sides to him, all that in his 20s stuff, when he was, you know, part of a, an, an amazing team and he kind of laughed at himself and we all laughed at him. And, and he tried like fury and he would have low moments as well. But all that was kind of forgotten in this morass of this tortured character. Do you, uh, do you see what I mean? Yeah. That, that bit had all passed by and been forgotten completely. And I suppose out of, you know, partly from my own point of view, I just wanted to remember those bits as well. I mean, I was furious when I, well, who knows what happened, but if he I was furious with him when he died, really, in, in one way. And we had grown a bit apart, and, you know, didn't see him as much, in the old, you know, from this century onwards, really. Mm -hmm. But we were very close for a long time, and we'd laugh at the same things about the absurdity of playing cricket, and we both... And he would tell you I was a bit more ruthless, and, you know, I let on. The nature of his death was so public and there are really no answers mm. about it. There are lots of people who will tell you that they have the answers, but mm. the more you look into the subject, nobody does. That lack of surety seems to be a wound with people who knew him well. The fact that there is this lack of resolution is something that continues to affect people to this day. What I notice about it, and you said you've picked this up, even though you, you know you both work with the ABC, but mm. not alongside him, is there is a sort of legacy there that is surprising given that he was, you know, a good candy cricketer. But it's mostly from his work, broadcasting and his writing, I guess. And it's probably more prevalent in Australia. Well, it certainly is more prevalent in Australia. And therefore, there must have been something special. He touched people from beyond cricket, I guess, mostly, mostly from his writing, but also from, from his idiosyncratic broadcasting. It's a curious legacy, but it exists. and It wouldn't exist for many people. No, I think that for, for reasons that are complicated and uh, mm. that a lot of people identified with his way of writing and, and his way of in interpreting the game mm. uh, through the through the spoken word as well. Uh, the first time that he uh, received uh, particularly brutal press coverage, well there's three watershed moments really isn't there? There's the 1986 Somerset mm -hmm. brouhaha which you're obviously a senior member of the club at the time and the fallout that did you think that changed him as a person uh, in a way that... that, that uh I think it was an absolutely fundamental moment in his life. Mm. It was a huge decision, which he didn't necessarily inaugurate that decision, but he could have stopped it, and he was the captain. 
So he had the final say. He didn't promote it initially. And I've never seen him... It was, a, it was an amazing period. It was a horrendous period to be part of it in many ways. And yet in one way, I'd never seen anyone so alive. He was stimulated by the whole process of special meetings. And, and, but it was also tortuous for him, you know. I wasn't at the famous meeting because I had sensibly absconded to WA. So he was incredibly alive then. And he enjoyed the sort of debate all that side of things but obviously not the abuse and I was about the only one inevitably talking a bit to both sides not to any good effect particularly but I you know I was still on speaking terms with both sides I remember saying to Pete I wouldn't do this but then we were very different characters he was much more confrontational than I was instinctively and so I wouldn't have taken that decision myself but but it stayed with him for years that decision and that moment, I think, it, it stayed with him far longer than the other relevant protagonists. Both shook it off in the end, and Viv and Joel. But I think Pete always, he almost wanted um, affirmation that this was the right decision from the likes of me, and I'm not sure I ever gave it to him. Is it frustrating that the actual person you knew is kind of lost in the stories? Pete? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's partly what I was thinking about when I read all these wonderful sort of appreciations or analyses of Pete's life. Um, and I, so, I, they, you know, they were very good at focusing on all the angst and the, the, the things we don't know about and the darker bits without maybe appreciating. I mean, if you, I suppect you've read It Never Rains all those years ago. Mm. I mean, it's it's a terrific book, and there are many dark moments in, but there are many humorous moments in it, and it's there was more to him than just being, as it was on his radio commentary, I'm sure. When you know people would have picked that up. Did uh, did you maintain a friendship with Ian Botham, sort of either side of the the falling out they have, and, and to this day? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't see so much of Ian, but it's we're it's no problem. But I'm good at that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I. I mean, I, it, it, I don't want to, I don't know whether I should say this really, but I would, but I will, since it's, you know, among friends. But, I, you know, you come over to Australia and I'd find myself at lunch somewhere in Melbourne or something. There'd be Pete and Ciappelli having lunch. And I like both those people. And just occasionally I'd come and sit, you know, I'd sit next to them. And then the subject of both would come up, mm. and they kind of fueled each other fantastically. <laughs> and I, well, I just have to zoom, do another food and just leave them to it because I, you know, both has many virtues as well. And I didn't really want to sit and listen to it really. She said that Ian left it behind. What happened at Somerset kind of left it there, but obviously maintained some animosity towards mm. um, Peter. Did you ever sort of encourage him to let that go, or was, was, it, was, it, was it well beyond that point? No, is the simple answer, I guess. I mean, both is not easy to turn round no not much easier than Ian Chapel probably <laughs> Viv you'd have to ask Viv but I think Viv you know was more open perhaps Viv and Pete were very close when they were youngsters in the team and it might not have been quite so straightforward with Viv and Viv you know I think put it behind him in the end but he was very hurt at the time obviously it seems an unlikely <laughs> partnership though Viv, Viv Richards and Peter but, no they were honestly Viv's son was called Marley he's called Marley because he asked Pete to find him what he thought might be an appropriate name and he did and that was you know back in probably the very early 80s and Pete had such high hopes of Viv as well so maybe he was dis disappointed he thought you know beyond cricket he sort of worshipped him in a way 
if he worshipped anyone. Viv was, you know, he, he would support him, he'd bat well with him, you know, he respected Pete as a battler on the field. So I promise you, f- in those, you know, first six, seven, eight years, uh, they, they, in their own way, as did Both, they, in their own way, they had quite a, an interesting relationship and quite a positive one. Both and Pete would have ridiculous arguments about politics, which were comical. Both would give nothing. Pete would be forensically brilliant. But that, you know, that's the way it was, and it was, you know, it was fine. It was great. So I, I don't know when the, you know, when the turning point was, but maybe somewhere in the mid early eighties. You've had a long and richly varied life in cricket. What's the best thing that the game's given you? Oh, Gordon Bennett, Jeff. Uh, I don't know. I think I've fleeced the game, haven't I? (laughs) It's given me... Jeff, it's given me an income. (laughs) Will that do you? Not a very big one, I hasten to add to any Guardian sort of listeners. But 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 no, well, it's given me more than an income. I've loved the game ever since, and I can't quite believe... Stop making this sound like an obituary, for heaven's sake. I've got, I've got a, I've got I've a got few years it. in me yet. <laughs> we hope I've so. always thought obituaries should be done for the living. You know? Wouldn't it be much nicer, or eulogies at least, if people stood up and made nice speeches about someone while they were still there to hear them? Well, it's clearly, it's clearly the case. I'm not suggesting you're about to pop your clothes. <laughs> but you're, you're still I've run out of cliches, Jeff. <laughs> but you still do. You're still, it's palpable. You're still like, sitting with you the last few tests, mate. It's clear that you are still consumed by this game. Yeah, I yes, it's pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but I uh, and I get annoyed when I think you know, that's not right and all that. Quietly, um, yeah. I mean, it's been it has been certainly in my working life. It's just completely dominated it, and I and I get ticked off by my wife. You know, I'm I'm not working, and there's a game going on. And I just have a quick look on the box, and <laughs> what are you doing watching that? Well, it's work. It's work. They, you know, this man could you know be a vital person. In the so um. <laughs> There we go. It's cricket. I mean, I'm more of a cricket. I still see myself more as a cricket man than a sort of journalist, if I'm honest. And you may have spotted why. Who, who among us hasn't watched Zimbabwe v Sri Lanka at four in the morning well, and told, us, <laughs> told ourselves that it's for research? <laughs> well, I haven't done it that often, but yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. Vic, uh, you've, uh, you've given us a, a huge amount of your time uh, and uh, at the end of a long test match and incredibly grateful for it uh, you've obviously done such a remarkable amount across a very long period of time in the game and doing our podcast is but one small thing there but uh, it, it's it's wonderful it's been wonderful to have you on and uh, well I want you, you two to keep writing lots until the end of the tour all right that's we'll, the deal we'll do our best and obviously it's not your eulogy but it's good to know that you've outlived the whacker Vic <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marks thank you very much for being on the final word cheers You are indeed listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and uh, thanks to Vic Marks for giving so generously of his time after five days of a test match. It's a substantial effort to put in. 3-0 to Australia. The Ashes wrapped up. England came over here with high hopes. They did compete at times during all three of the first three test matches, but they've still been trounced, to be honest. It's amazing to think where they went in the space of 24 hours. Between being 368 for four at the drinks break on day two with two men, well over 100, Milan and Bairstow batting beautifully. They were driving Australia into the dirt, make no mistake. Steve Smith had the bowl himself. Mitchell Marsh as the fourth seamer was relatively ineffective. The bowlers were tiring. It was exactly the preconditions for a monster total. Go back to that first day. We've had 
some pretty ordinary stuff at the Wacker in recent years, some bat-friendly pitches. Mm. And then there was suddenly a bit of spice in it, at least on day one with the Australian fast bowling cartel. They were all quick. And it was some pretty torrid stuff for England to survive. Alistair Cook was out early and Mark Stoneman and James Vince battled through most of that first session. Vince was out just before lunch, but I thought his contribution, you know, he only made 20-odd, was kind of underrated in that he actually fought through probably the toughest part of the day. Yeah, Mark Stoneman after lunch as well. That was uh, the first hour, I think it was nine overs I wrote at the time. There was a nine-over block after lunch, which has to be up there with the most exhilarating test cricket I've seen. Two wickets fell, but in equal measure, it could have been six the way that the Australian quicks were coming at them. We had the numbers crunched with Crickbeers at the time. It was the quickest three fast bowlers have ever bowled together since they've been keeping records. Yeah, like the, highest average speed. Highest average speed, yeah. So to think that England were facing literally the fastest bowling in concert ever, that could have been a lot worse for them. Yet they took first day on us. They were well ahead in the game after day one. And it's not as though it was a road, and it wasn't initially. And it wasn't at the end either. It was a very good deck to bat on in the middle, which happened mm. to be when Smith and Marsh did their best work. But still, it, it was commendable where England got the game to on that day one. They were begging to bat through a day. They hadn't had done it in the test match except for the first day in Brisbane and that was rain affected. This was a day when they really took it to the Australians and for my part I left that thinking this is great. England can't lose here. The Ashes will be alive when we go to Melbourne. The worst case scenario from this point going forward with rain scheduled in the back half of the test match will be putting to one side parochial interests. It will be alive at Melbourne which is so rare but <laughs> very soon Steve Smith made a, di- a different decision. I suppose it comes down to uh, recent history where England have had a record of making 400 in the first innings and then losing by an innings. They've done that three times in the last 12 months, you know, a couple in India and did it again at Perth um, and really seeded a couple of the best batting sessions to Australia. So Johnny Bairstow and David Milan came back on the second day. Milan already had his century. Bairstow went to his. They were cruising along really and it only takes one mistake sometimes. Milan, a bit of a tired shot, 140 to his name, comes down the wicket, skews an outside edge off Nathan Lyon. Terrific diving catch by the sub, Peter Hanscom mm. at a point. And then the next thing you know, they run through them. You know, Mitch Stark bowls an absolute beauty to bowl Johnny Bairstow, an unbeaten 100 at the time, Mm. and still can't keep out a fast reversing Yorker that crashed into his stumps. And from four down, you know, England have been pretty much all out pretty quickly most times this series. So suddenly where they probably should have batted through much of that second day and used those good conditions, that was ceded to Smith, who just cracked 92 before stumps in off 122 balls. That's the contrast, isn't it? The Milan dismissal with Smith, it's ruthlessness. It's an extra gear that the great batsmen have. It's that when they realise they have a chance to push on with the game, they don't get tired. Steve Smith talks about the most fun he has in his life is when he's batting. It's less about accumulation of runs, but he spoke after the Brisbane test when he, as we said before, his slowest 100. Hmm. He just loved batting all day. He doesn't seem to spend a day of his working life not enjoying his job. Yep. Now, who can say that? <laughs> uh, whereas Milan's shot, uh, as brilliant in his innings as it was, and I think that might be a watershed moment for him in his career you know no one scored more runs on the Wacker in a test match than Milan across his two innings that did open the door for Australia and he, that was poor game awareness it was lavish and it wasn't sort of like he was beaten by a good bit of bowling although it was good to flight it up it was batsman error that's what I saw a contrast between those two sides and as for the um, making 400 in the first innings and getting rolled over by an innings it's happened three times by England this year alone it's only happened seven times in history so again if you're looking for something to point to with England there is a lapse there it's, they, get, they can get ahead in the game and they can quickly drop their bundle as well especially away from home. You could see it in the way that they were bereft of ideas in the field when Smith was just doing what he wanted. Came back the next morning, Sean Marsh was with him overnight and was out in that first session and you know again there was a slight opportunity for England there. You've got Mitch Marsh who's just come back into the side, could be seen as a weak link, target him. You've got the inexperienced wicketkeeper and some bowlers to come but they just weren't able to make that breakthrough and Mitchell Marsh on his home pitch in conditions where he knows exactly how to play a 
Ireland where he's just made a century and a 90-odd in his last couple of shield knocks on that wicket. He just came out looking like, I own this place. This is my house. <laughs> this is my backyard. Don't come here and expect to bowl to me and get away with it. Yeah, when they came back on that third morning, it was pretty much get Smith or lose the test match, wasn't it? Yeah. It's, it's You don't sort of feel that way about other players. It, no. it just had that palpable sense of they have to find something special. And in equal measure, it never felt like it was going to happen. And as you mentioned, Shaw Marsh got out within the first hour or so, which did open up a big opportunity for Mitchell Marsh. But let's not forget the sort of pressure on him. His only real act in the test match of any note to that point was dropping a catch at first slip. Um, we mentioned before, there's always claims of awful sort of nepotism and other things when Mitchell Marsh is involved, um, especially after what happened in India when his, when his statistics went down to, um, if I recall correctly, the, the least effective number six batsman in the history of test cricket. One of the newspapers splashed with that worst batsman of all time or something to that effect. That sort of baggage at home, added pressure, parents there, his grandparents were there. He insisted that his parents and grandparents don't leave their seats while they're batting. I think it's a bit stiff not letting your grandparents go to the bathroom when you're going to bat for five hours. But anyway, uh, in the best possible way. They're all very super, yeah, superstitious, well, it, the Marsh family. It wouldn't have been a concern where you know his previous test record was sort of 42 off 35 balls was about the, yeah, that's right. the average uh, Mitch Marsh successful innings, whereas this one just on he went. Yeah, well, he did. But it was it, again, this was the critique of Mitchell Marsh was that he was a, a white ball plunderer, that he threw his front foot down and, and it hit through the line and he was you know, basically a one-trick pony. It, when it was flat... Which but, I think is fair, yeah. I mean, he'd, yeah. he'd probably admit that he himself. Did. He, he did. The, well, the Scott Muellerman angle, his, his batting coach, how he came back from India, um, we asked him a few questions at the media conference about this. He said it was, he thought he legitimately wouldn't get back to playing Test cricket again. He thought his Test career could be over. Eight months on, it's never looked like being a rosier one. But he talks about having made a few decisions when he came back from India about his batting and, and prioritising his defence. And that can be seen in a, in a range of ways. But the best way, and what he said himself was, he realised that cricket wasn't just plonking the front foot down. And even though that's still his most attractive stroke, of course, when he gets on that front foot and drives down the ground, it's like watching Shane Watson all over again at his very best when he holds that pose. It's, it's majestic, but there's more to it now. And, yeah. you know, Chris Rogers spoke about this on the coverage about the way you can now play off the back foot. Yeah, in that he's changed the way that he approaches the ball so that uh, the way Rogers explained it, Marsh is meeting the ball at the same point in the ball's trajectory, but he's coming to the ball a fraction later in terms of his mm. stroke, so he's not reaching for it, but he's waiting for it to come to him. It's easy to forget in that match situation when he came out, you know, Australia was still, what, 170 behind? Yeah, I think it was 155 behind. But have you ever seen a test match? Have you ever been to a test match, Jeff, where a side has been in arrears by over 150, yet we were already talking about, could they be 600 by stumps? Even as Mitchell Marsh walked out, it didn't ever feel as though we were in a game where England were ahead, despite the fact they'd taken four wickets, and the fact that Australia is so collapse-prone. We saw England have a collapse the day before, but this is an observation really about the potency of England's bowling. At no point did we think, oh, well, here we go. Mm. This is going to be like Adelaide under lights with Jimmy with the pink ball, where yep. the wickets could fall. We, we never had that conversation. It was, well, Smith set. He's past 100. Mitchell Marsh has got his eye in. Um, this could go massive. I mean, they didn't they didn't actually hit the lead until two-thirds of the way through the middle session. But the game was over. 50 runs in arrears. Simon Kadic on the radio coverage goes, they are gone. Yeah. They are gone. They're still 50 runs up. And had it been inverted with England 50 runs behind and six wickets in hand, you wouldn't have necessarily backed them to get a lead. That's right. Um, the thing you said about Smith batting all day, that was most telling in that third session where he was he was absolutely cooked. He was exhausted. He was still running threes, but he was running in gumboots. He was just <laughs> struggling up and down the pitch. They had to bring a chair out for him at the drinks break, you know, change of ends at Roland Garrosh <laughs> and uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, have the water bottle and the towel and get himself ready. I love that new part of modern cricket, 
by the way, just as I say, I, I quite enjoyed the drinks break with the brolly. The umbrella comes up. When Usman Khawaja was 12th man in Chittagong, he brought the umbrella up and there was quite an unflattering screenshot. It. I think that's a, that's part of the modern game, isn't it? You've got to take your rest where you can get it. Because Smith, as you say, he hit, what, hit three boundaries in the final session. And Marsh hit about 13, I think, from memory. But I think that was also about him realising that the game wasn't over. I think Smith kind of made the assessment. He was spent, sure, but he's yep. like, hang on, if I can get through to stumps, yep. and regardless of how many runs are on the board, the psychological damage that will do to England. Absolutely. Um, and that, that's kind of exactly what happened. And he was able to do that because Mitchell Marsh was playing so well. So the runs were flowing at sure. the other end. Smith didn't have to worry, and he got that support. They both got through to stumps. Marsh, 181, not out. Smith, 229, not out. With a 116-run head start. Yeah. Yeah, 116-run head start. Had they played for another hour, Mitch Marsh would have overtaken him, I reckon. And there was this beautiful moment after the test where Mitch Marsh said that night, he just went home, he had a family <laughs> barbecue, he, you know, Swampy had a couple of reds, was, was his phrase. He went to bed, and he said, I just lay in bed and just looked at the scorecard. I didn't watch the highlights. I didn't read any of the press. I just looked at the scorecard. Uh, isn't, that a, isn't that just a beautiful little moment? A, a few other lovely Mitchell. I, I, you can probably tell I'm a massive Mitchell Marsh fan if you're listening to this and have been for a very long time, so I took a particular amount of enjoyment in this, just as the way, same way I did when, when Glenn Maxwell made his maiden 100 in Ranchies seven or eight months ago. The bit I liked was when he talked about how growing up behind Swampy's Bar, as it's called, they used to look at the photo of Jeff Marsh and Mark Taylor batting through the day at Nottingham in 1989, making 301 for no loss that day. And I thought it was ever so neat that the partnership at Stumps when it paused between Smith and Marsh was also 301. It's just like this nice little... So he probably saw that photo when his old man was having a glass of wine behind the bar on that Saturday night. He probably saw that photo and, you know, these things coming full circle. Mm. The narrative, the pathos, I love it all. It was, it yep. was really nice. And the other thing I, I thought was that the fact that he was even going to his parents for a barbecue. It was like, oh, what are you doing tonight? Having a, he's celebrating with your, with your tank. He's like, no, no, just going to mum and dad's place for a barbecue. I'm like, this, this is what kind of yeah. sums it up for me. This is Mitchell Marsh. He's a, he's a simple bloke. He's a lovely guy. And you couldn't hope for a, a better result for someone like that, especially after the journey he's had in test cricket so far. Well, I told you, it's his house. It's his hometown. It's Perth. It's Marsh territory. So that's the way it rolls out there. But they came back the next day. Didn't add to the partnership. Poor old Mitch was out second ball of the day. Good ball from Jimmy Anderson, who finally found his mojo, getting a bit of in-swing and was nailing the pads. And then he knocked off uh, Steve Smith as well for I, the addition of only 10 runs. I was filthy with that for, for, for two reasons. One, I thought, how good would have been turning your, your 100 into a double? But more to the point, I've got a bit of a thing about captains declaring too early. I thought Smith was half a chance to break some really big records. Had he got motoring, and because remember, they batted till half an hour after lunch. Had Smith yeah. batted for two and a half hours, uh, had he put the foot down, and we've seen how, how quickly Smith can go when he when he chooses to. Dare I say, 3-3-4 three, three, could have been under threat. Uh, the Taylor-Bradman score. And, uh, oh, yeah, that, that, 100 in the session, if he was uh, at his peak, would not have been out of the question. You know what? I, I, I just get the feeling Steve Smith might have another opportunity or tend to do that through his test career, so we shouldn't lose too much sleep. There were some Bradman comparisons going around in terms of technique and the way that he works the field mm. and his ridiculous record as captain, 14 tonnes in 29 tests as captain. I think Bradman was 14 in 24 or yeah, something like right. that. Yeah, that's right. He's four behind. It was the same rather in four, four so more So actually tests. not that far off the pace, which for Bradman is insane. But the, yeah. the big difference is the number of big scores. Braddles, bless him, just went to 200 on the regular and 300 when he felt like it. So that's the thing that Smith's got to tick off and you feel like maybe he's just starting to crack the code now he's got his second double century <laughs> and you feel like he's now like oh this feels pretty good I quite like this I might do this more it was reflected in a way he celebrated the double ton Greg yeah. Warm from the Fairfax Press it made the point to me that he, Smith realised how important this was in Ash's history that 100 and especially going double and going big speaking of Bradman how, how's this Steve Smith as captain in Australia in first innings averages 105 
that's ridiculous. That's when you set up a test match. That's the model, isn't it? That's the Ricky Ponting model. Go in on day one or in the first innings and, and you set up the test match and you take responsibility for that. And that's precisely what Smith does. He averages 75 and a half as captain of Australia. I mean, this purple patch, will it, will it ever end? It's been going now yeah. consistently since August the 24th, 2013, that breakthrough 100 he made at the Oval. Yep. This has been unabated. In that period of time, there hasn't been a slump. There hasn't been a period where you could point out and go, Steve Smith is struggling. It's been one milestone yep. after another, one statsgasm after another. Like the, the way in which we, we observe his cricket, it may very well be that we are observing the most special period of play or special period of one's career since Bradman. And I think that's something we should take great pleasure in. I don't think we should mask it or be cynical about it. This is this is brilliant and we may not see it again in our lifetime. Even if it ended now, even if he suddenly went downhill now, he'd still have an incredible career. Mm. But if he keeps going at the rate he's at for another few years well you're going to see some amazing numbers get racked up and some amazing records fall you know probably that one question mark for him is still the moving ball in that um, he was done in Adelaide fairly cheaply twice when there was more assistance for the bowlers his last England tour he made his hundreds at Lords and the Oval when the conditions were a bit more more batting friendly, which isn't to say it was easy because England were bowled out for a hundred on the same Lord's pitch where Smith made his double. But in the other three Test matches, you know Cardiff, Trent Bridge, Edgbaston, when things were more difficult, that's where he struggled. That's the one thing for me. I think when he goes back to England in 2019, and he will know this because he's he's a nerd, he's a nuffy, he he, he knows his numbers and he know <laughs> he follows the coverage. He will know that he wants to get a big hundred at Edgbaston against a sure. ball or at Trent Bridge, and that's going to be the next laser focus on his. List. He's a bit like the European Union, far more popular in London than, than in, the, in the farther parts of the United Kingdom. I think that he overcame the turning ball problem. Early in his career, there was suggestion that he had this fancy footwork, but um, that, that he couldn't put it away. And, and we saw, I mean, that, that innings at Pune this year mm. is, is the best innings I've ever seen. And I'll, I'll probably won't see a better innings than that. It was an epic, that second innings 100 to set up that test win in Pune. So he's done it and he's shown that discipline required there. 300s in four test matches in that country. You're right. It is the next thing, isn't it? Coming into the end of that fourth day, there was some thought that England might get saved by the rain. Then maybe it turned out that they were hurt by the rain. It's hard to tell. They got off a bit early on day four and they lost some time on day five. But by the time they got on after the scheduled lunch break on day five, the wet patch is always a problem. And that was the issue as the covers had leaked. The wacker groundsmen were literally going, what is this sky folly wet thing? Ah, like they were completely... <laughs> completely befuddled by them like they'd never seen rain before and apparently have never lost a day of test cricket to being rained out in Perth so they're all out there with the Ghostbusters proton packs out with the blow dryers trying to dry things off and there's a massive wet patch on a good length and then they finally sort of dry it off and they get out there after lunch and seventh ball of the innings first ball Josh Hazelwood bowls it hits that spongy mattressy bit it keeps low it gets about eight inches off the ground shoots through Johnny Bairstow and takes out his off stump and England at that point they'd already obviously lost four wickets the night before they were pretty much gone from the seventh ball of the day. Yeah, wasn't it the most predictable part of that whole test match is that Josh Hazelwood was going to run a muck on the final day, just as he did in Adelaide for that matter. The discipline and accuracy which he bowls with, having not just the crack running through the middle of the pitch, which we saw used so well by Mitchell Stark the previous night, we didn't mention that, but there were calls that Stark had bowled the ball of the the ball of the 21st century when he took uh, James Vince's off stump out of the ground. Now I've got to say, I mean, it's great to watch. It makes a fantastic YouTube clip, don't get me wrong, but it cannot be, by, it cannot be the ball of the century when it's a ball that's hit a crack 
track. It's just it, that doesn't make it a lesser delivery. It obviously makes it something special to watch and observe. Yeah. But it's about putting things in perspective. That wasn't his natural ability to make the ball do that. Let's be clear. Spectacular accidents. Uh, yeah, great, there great you go. to watch. That's much. Be- that's a much better way of putting it. Spectacular accident. <laughs> but also, like it, it tickles me that the ball of the century comes around roughly about three times a year in international <laughs> cricket. Amanda you know, Wellington. Amanda Wellington just yeah, bowled yeah. the ball of the century uh, in the North Sydney Oval. Um, Devendra Bishu a couple of years ago. Devendra Bishu. That was my fault, by the way. I, yep. I, have, I don't think I've ever told you that story. That's completely my fault. I, I came back to the press box after he uh, bowled that ball to Brad Haddon, and I was on the commentary on radio, and I compared it to Shane Warne. Someone quickly Googled it and realised it was on the same date, and one thing led to another, and that was leading all our stories <laughs> that night. So, um, sorry, Devendra, for putting you through that, and I'm um, sorry to the readers who had to hear that nonsense. Didn't Ashley Giles bowl the ball of the century yes, to Damien Martin, Martin yes. in 05? Uh, you know, somehow shredded at about three feet. Been a lot of balls of the century going around in the last 10 years. But what was class, though? I mean, you know, we talk about the freakish action that was stuck. That Hazelwood delivery to land it in the wet match on the first ball back, that showed the sort of bowler he is. No surprises about him taking a five-wicket bag on the final day. I loved the one where he hit the crack, and I think they said it moved 89 centimetres in deviation. It went to second slip. Mitchell Marsh was moving across from first slip to collect it. And would Hazelwood be a case for, maybe if not for Smith, who's probably already got it stitched up, but Hazelwood could almost be man of the series without once winning man of the match. Yeah, interesting observation. If not for Smith, who kind of has that in the bag, as you say. This happened last year. Remember Josh Hazelwood last year against Pakistan? Bowled immaculately for two for 30 off 20. That that was kind of his standard analysis. And, yep. and there was a case being made at the time that he was the most important player in that series. I think he, I think it went to Mitchell Stark. But, you know, you can he, he is that set-and-forget bowler. The uh, challenge in front of England now is to somehow get themselves back together to uh, avoid the whitewash Joe Root. was quite upbeat about that. He was saying, look, we'll just take a couple of days to digest this. This is a really hard thing to have happened to us. The, the talk was there. The talk was right. And Steve Smith was a little more relaxed. He said, look, I just want to enjoy this. We've won the series. We'll worry about Melbourne when we get there. So will the Australians come in with the Hawaiian shirts on and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> drinking something out of a pineapple? And could, could England come in with a steely, new, found sense of purpose and I, knock them over? I was thinking about this last night and there's some good pieces of writing about about Trevor Bayliss's press conference yesterday, the England coach, and, and also what Paul Farbrace, the assistant coach, had to say. There's a concession they don't have the cattle with the ball. There's an acknowledgement that their bowling's not fast or penetrative enough. There's a feeling of inevitability about how this all played out as a consequence of that. My fear is you, you combine those things together, and also we know that what happens when teams lose Ashes series, and there tends to be blood splattered across the wall. The coaching staff and the backroom staff at England are acutely aware of that, uh, and whether that infects the way they prepare for this test match uh, will be interesting to see. Root is upbeat, but Root knows that this isn't the first time he'll lead England to Australia. Root's a genius. Root hasn't had the best series with the bat. He's tried all sorts of different innovative and funky, if you like, fields that haven't necessarily paid off. He did choose to bowl first at Adelaide, which uh, which was a mistake. But this is a you know it's, it's an it's an awful way to go on a learning curve, getting thumped in Australia. Don't get me wrong, but. Uh, I think in the fullness of time, he'll be a better captain for this experience. My fear is more for those around him, uh, whether Cook will survive this tour, whether he wants to survive this tour, whether Cook, uh, after playing 150 test matches in the space of just over 11 years, has the interest in continuing to play. It's always hard after you've given up the captaincy to maintain the same enthusiasm for the task at hand that you may have had beforehand. Um, the question's over Stuart Broad. Granted, he's got some inflammation around the knee, but the fact that there's so many headlines back in the UK about him having the, the second worst Ashes figures ever or whatever it was that was doing the rounds the other day. Um, it's a bit, bit different story for James Anderson, but still he gets clumped in with the other two due to his age. Uh, that's more what I'm interested in, how much that will, will influence the, the final two test matches with people now, not just uh, worrying about winning games of cricket, but also worrying about their careers. Blood on the walls, 
Red rum, red rum. <laughs> God, I wish I wish I didn't say that now. That sounds so graphic. I hate those sort of analogies with cricket, but you know, well, we'll become this far now, haven't we? You're a graphic designer. We will, of course, be back with you after that Boxing Day test match to uh, trawl through the entrails of the chickens and see what we can deduce for the future. But enough for now. This has been The Final Word. My name's Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, alongside me as always. Thanks to Vic Marks for giving us his time earlier. And thanks to you, the unsung hero, the one without whom the podcasting world would not exist. If you're listening to this for the first time, make sure you find the subscribe link on iTunes and you can also just bung it into the Google machine and look us up on Audio Boom and SoundCloud and other such platforms or we are just on theguardian.com every match throughout this Ashes series. And also if you want to drop us a line, final word cricket at gmail.com is where you'll find Jeff and I and also don't be shy about giving us a bit of a review on iTunes those things help in terms of getting us towards the top of the pops on the cricket podcast out there and hopefully earning a few more listeners along the way and of course you can always find us on Twitter if you want to yell rampant abuse at us (laughs) or make fun of our haircuts our names or our parentage thanks for listening we'll catch you next time Sorry if I ran out to empty wrote this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it.